opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. True crime stories are discussed in this podcast, which may contain graphic and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, we have shirts for sale now, so go on to our website at www.freshlybrewednoir.com and use code FBN2023 for $5 off your purchase. We currently are selling in the U.S. and working on international sales. Thanks you guys for your support. Welcome back to Freshly Brew Noir. I'm Summer. And I'm Jennifer. And this is episode 51, The Survivor's Story of Allison Botha. And it's very early. We had to do an early episode. There's a lot going on today. We don't usually record this early. Yeah, I had to be extra caffeinated. Actually, I've been up since 5 a.m. Finishing your show notes. Yes. Why do you say it like that? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going off of four hours of sleep. It's a little rough this morning, but we're going to make it. You're going to do it, yeah. I made my Nespresso, and I poured the cold brew in there. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> oh, so you did the same thing. I okay. poured my cold brew on top of the Nespresso, yeah. It's just whatever. Yeah, yeah just get all the caffeine yeah. in me as soon as possible. <laughs> we need caffeine patches. Send those to P.O. Box. No, I'm just kidding. Some might say we're addicted, but... A little bit. It's a legal addiction. We're fine. It's. It might be a problem. Probably. (laughs) We do have some business, though, I wanted to talk about just really quickly. Oh, you do? Yes. What's this business? I want to talk about how Justin from Savannah missed his opportunity. Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, that was so long ago, like a year ago, right? So he had ample time to reach out, and he hasn't. If Justin is listening, too bad, Justin. You waited too long because Jennifer's off the market now. It's official. Yeah. I mean, it's been official for a while. He's... He's great. Pretty amazing, actually. It's like, is this guy real? Is he real? Yeah. He he is real, though. He is. I can confirm. The way he asked (laughs) asked me to be his girlfriend, it was just so cute. Summer was there. She almost cried. I did cry. I teared up while I was videoing. (laughs) (laughs) You will not see that video because that's personal, but tell them how he did it. Okay. Well, we're like avid watchers of reality TV. And so we like to watch The Bachelor. I do. I think he just does it for me. (laughs) But I told him, I joked with him. I was like, yeah, if you're going to ask me to be your girlfriend, then you have to give me a rose. And I have to, you know, accept it. But you weren't expecting him to bring a rose, right? Yeah, it was just an ongoing joke. And then on St. Patrick's Day, we all were getting ready to go uh, to Athens for the pub crawl. And I think what we were two margaritas in. We were pre-gaming while everybody else was on their way. Yeah. And then as we're like getting ready to leave, he comes around the counter and in front of <laughs> everyone except your husband. Yeah. My husband's still upset he missed that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know. He, had he to was be in there. the other room. I don't even know what he was doing, but he's like, really? I step away for a second and I miss it. He was there printing our tickets. So oh, that's right. The tickets like, we didn't even need for the pub crawl that didn't even really happen. But anyway, continue yeah. with your story. Yeah, we digress. So he came around and he has this rose. And, you know, I um, automatically knew like, what this was and I just start laughing. An introvert Jennifer. <laughs> She's like giggling and putting her hand up by her nose, which she is right now. Stop. <laughs> like, oh my God. Yeah. So it was super cute. He was like, We've had a great few months together. I want to ask you if, you know, you'll be my girlfriend. And I said, I I accept. And after that, it was 
official. Officially official. Yeah, yep. so I have the rose. I, like, pressed it in a book, and I'm going to frame it. I thought he did a great job. I thought it was really cute. It was very unexpected. Even though we were, like, before they got there, we were talking about it, and I was just telling you. That's we, right, we were. We were making up a playlist for the car. Yeah, for the car ride there, because it was going to be a while. And you were talking about him giving you the final rose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As a joke, and then he really brought it. I think he may have us, like, you know, bugged or something. He must hear the conversations. (laughs) Or we talk about it on the podcast. Have we ever said that? No, we've never said it on the podcast. No, we've never talked about Mm. anything like that, except for Justin, who lost out. Sorry, Justin. But thank you for your service in our military. We appreciate you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's all I had. We had to bring that up. Okay, you just had to make that announcement. Had to make that announcement. Yeah, it was, it's great. So one day somebody's going to be like, oh, I know Justin from Savannah that's in the military and they're going to have him listen to these episodes. And he's going to be like, oh, my God, I did. I missed out. Justin's probably like married somewhere now. In a year. It could happen, I guess. Yeah, things happen. What if her name is Jennifer? No. It's like I couldn't marry the Jennifer. So I found another Jennifer. (laughs) This is not a thing. (laughs) She likes caffeine, too. We don't know. So yeah, I guess um, other than that, uh, you had to come over and help me with my laundry yesterday and see me wrestle my dog. <laughs> that should have been on video. That was the best. Jennifer's horse. Uh huh. In the laundry room. Yeah, we trapped. We did a little. <laughs> we did a little laundry together. <laughs> there was a lot of a lot going cutting on. and yeah. There's some plumbing pipe. issues. Yeah, replacing. Yeah, my husband hates plumbing, but Jennifer's, of course, she's like family, so. If there's an issue, he's going to solve it. Like, we need to go check out Jennifer's uh, laundry room. He's like, all right, let's go check it out. It'll be quick. And of course, it's not quick. It was like not an easy fix. A couple hours, a lot of cutting, new pipes, but it worked. So yeah, no more leak. Shout out to my neighbors who like just came Uh, through with the tools. They're the best neighbors. I really lucked out in that department. They're awesome. So. Any other business? Do we have anything? Thank you to everyone who bought shirts and have been sending us their pictures. We really think it's awesome that you're supporting us and that you like the shirts. So keep sending us those pictures. We love it. It just makes us so happy. Yeah. It warms our heart like uh, a latte. (laughs) There's nothing like a nice latte heart. (laughs) So today, the episode we're covering is tough. It's one that you know about. Yeah, I watched the documentary... Probably a couple years ago. I heard about it a few years ago, too. And it kind of just fell off my radar. But then I heard about it again. And I was like, I need to cover that story. It's such a crazy story. And um, it's an amazing survivor story. It's one that when I was watching the documentary, it was just unbelievable what she went through. And the fact that she was alive, you'll get into it. But it is truly unbelievable. It is. Yeah. They say it's nothing short of a miracle. What was that? I don't know. Oh, God. Jennifer's ghost. My dog's not even here. So I, know. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Dolce's at grandma's house. <laughs> Do we have ghosts? I don't know. Jennifer may have ghosts. Okay. Okay. Well, anyway. So we asked for. <laughs> Put the peacock feathers back up. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Anyway, so I guess just be prepared. All right. This is a very graphic episode. Um, what happens to her? is unreal. So let's talk about it. Yeah. Allison's experience is probably one of the most terrifying stories in true crime that like 
has truly sickened me towards what monstrous acts of cruelty humanity is capable of. Her will to live is like nothing I've ever heard before. What she endures, I don't feel like there's an appropriate word to describe it. So, disclaimer, this will be very graphic, but it's also a remarkable survivor story. And you talked about the documentary, which I do recommend. It's called Allison. You can watch it for free on Amazon Prime. And she tells her story herself. There's also, like, the prosecutor, the judge. All the people really involved in her case. Yes. And the people who, like, helped save her life. Yeah. Which, we'll talk about that. It's a really well done documentary. So I recommend it. In this episode, we're taking you to Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Alison Botha was born on September 22nd, 1967. Her parents were divorced when she was 10 years old, and she spent most of her childhood living with her mother and brother. She served as head at the Collegiate High School for Girls in Port Elizabeth. After she finished school, she spent a few years traveling, and then she returned home. At this time, she was 27 years old, and she was working as an insurance broker. It was December 18th, 1994. She was spending an ordinary day out with her friends, and she was driving back home after dropping one of her friends off. Her normal parking spot was taken, so she drove around and found an open space. As she was parking, a man forced himself into her car and held her at knife point. He was a scrawny, tall, white male with blonde hair. He demanded that she move over to the passenger seat as he took control of the car. He told her his name was Clinton and that he wasn't going to hurt her as long as she obeyed him. He said he just needed to borrow her car as he drove around to pick up a friend of his. And she believed him and complied with what he said. So, you know, this whole time she's like, okay, if I just do whatever he says, he's just going to use my car and it'll be fine. However, these men did not have any intention of not hurting her. In fact, Clinton was not the driver's real name. His true identity was Franz de Toy, and the friend he picked up was Tians Kruger. These men drove Allison to a deserted area of Port Elizabeth. Franz stopped the car, and immediately Allison knew something bad was going to happen. Franz simply asked, are you going to fight? And she said no, she didn't know how to fight. He forced her to have oral sex with him, And he did the same to her while gloating by saying, like, does your boyfriend do this to you? And he kissed her. He claimed himself to be like a gentleman with the ladies. In the documentary, she admits to having an orgasm. However, it should be noted that that does not mean she enjoyed it. It was a reflex of the body. In an article by Jenny Mortar, What Science Says About Arousal During Rape, who is a uh, science writer and editor, quote, of those who report their rapes around 4 to 5% also describe experiencing an orgasm, but the true numbers are likely much higher. In a 2004 review paper, a clinician reports, I have met quite a lot of male victims who had the full sexual response during sexual abuse. I have met several female victims of incest and rape who had lubrication and orgasm. Despite what many rapists would like to believe, arousal does not mean that an assault was enjoyable or that a victim was asking for it. So what does it mean? Quite simply, our bodies respond to sex and fear. They do so often entirely without our permission or intention. Orgasm during rape is not an example of an expression of pleasure. It's an example of a physical response similar to breathing, sweating, or an adrenaline rush. I thought that was important to say. Yeah, I didn't know that. And I think that would be something that makes sense. Like, obviously, a rape victim would probably not want to admit that they orgasmed during their assault. 
because yeah. they would think like, oh, does that mean somebody's going to think it? I liked it and it wasn't rape, but it was still rape. That's just the body responding, just a physiological response, nothing to do with whether they enjoyed it. Yes. You know, contrary to what the rapists or the assaulters would like to believe. After Franz was done, he asked Tienz, did you want to have sex with a lovely lady? And he responded with, no, I want to fuck the bitch. And Franz tells him that he can't talk to a lady that way. Cause, oh, because he's the gentleman? Right. Whatever. Yeah. It's like, after you've just raped her. You're not a gentleman. No. Yeah. Go to hell. So he strangled her until she was unconscious. The men stabbed her in her abdomen 37 times and slashed at her throat 17 times. After this vicious attack, they threw her clothes out of the car and left her for dead. She was naked outside after being stabbed 37 times. In her abdomen, and then... Her throat was slashed. 17 times, yes. And you would think she wouldn't survive that, but she's still alive. She is. I mean, obviously, because this is a survivor story. Right. But still, I mean, that's... Unbelievable. over 50 times. Yeah. You would just think the blood loss, that she wouldn't be able to survive that. Yes, exactly. But we'll get into it. Allison states that, at the time, she could not feel any pain, and that she was having an outer body experience. Like, she felt like she was leaving her body. But she said she wanted to live, and she wanted to make sure that those men could not do what they did to her to anyone else. So she wrote the men's names. As she's lying there, she wrote the men's names in the sand. So she wrote Franz and Tians, and then under that she wrote, I love mom. As she laid there, she felt something wet at her legs. That's when she realized that her intestines were outside of her body. She noticed a denim shirt nearby, and she grabbed it and held everything in with one hand, obviously trying to hold her intestines in. And she's what, in the sand or the dirt? Yeah, she's in the sand, yeah. So she's in the sand, and her intestines are outside of her body, and she's trying to hold in her intestines. Yes. And then with her other hand, she's trying to use that to crawl around and, like, you know, push herself around to get somewhere. That part in the documentary, I was just like, what? I know. Yeah. Like, how do you have that the strength to just keep yeah. moving forward? Right. With that blood loss and just and a lot of people would probably pass out if they saw that, especially on themselves. So the fact that she was able to remain conscious is amazing to me. Yes. And so, you know, she's crawling, but she's realizing she's not making the progress she needs to make. So she's like, okay, I have to get up. So she pushes herself up somehow. And when she does that, oh, and let's not forget, like, while she's, like, crawling around, she's collecting herself in sand, and there's, yeah. like, cut glass everywhere, so that's... Infection in the body, right, all these... Yeah, all the possibilities. Yeah. And so she pushed herself to stand up, but when she did, her vision went dark, and she was like, what's going on? And then she realized, like, she put her hand up to her throat, and her hand went into her whole throat, where they had cut open her neck. And so she was almost decapitated. She realized her head had fell back in between her shoulder blades. And so it's unimaginable. She holds her head back in place somehow and is still like, okay, let me move forward and try to find somebody. Just having the ability to do that. I I can't even imagine how Maybe it was that out-of-body experience where she's like, okay, this is happening, but I'm, like, watching it, and I'll just have to make it. Yeah. I mean, maybe she, like, disassociated somehow to the pain and what she was actually going through. 
I don't know I'm how. sure when it's like that traumatic that your body just kicks into another mode and it's like auto blocks blocks the pain so you can try and survive. Yeah, and she basically says that she felt like someone was like carrying her when she was moving herself. So at some point after, you know, finally making it to the middle of the road, she fell and she thought the worst thing that could happen at that time would be like if a car ran her over. One car actually did come, and they stopped, but they left. Eventually, another car was coming, and in that car would be 20-year-old vet tech Tian Eilard. He was on vacation in Port Elizabeth with a few friends when they came upon Allison lying in the middle of the road with no clothes. And he ran out, he took her hand, and he looked into her eyes, and they were bloodshot. He told her that you've got nice eyes, and held her hand the entire time, And he used his vet training to tuck her exposed thyroid back into her body. Oh, my gosh. And he did everything to try to keep her alive while his friends called for an ambulance. That's terrifying. I mean, you obviously, you don't expect to see someone in the middle of the road in that condition. And thankfully, it was somebody who knew how to respond. Yeah, who had some kind of medical training Mm -hmm. to, to help her. Yeah. And who was kind enough to actually stop and help her. Because, I mean, I think sometimes people just, they just mind their business. Like, they're, okay, let me not get involved in that. Even if you see somebody lying on the side of the road? Possibly. I mean, the first car stopped and then left. So I think to some extent, sometimes people don't want to get involved with those kind of things. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So when you see someone who actually will help you, I mean, it, it definitely, like, restores your faith in humanity, I think. This story definitely restored my faith in humanity. Obviously, not not the initial not part. Not the initial attack, yeah. but what happens later. Yeah. 40 minutes later, the paramedics arrived. Tian said that he urged the driver of the ambulance to hurry to the hospital, but it seemed like they had already figured that she was going to die because of the severity of her wounds. And so that's why they kept on at a less than optimal speed. After she was admitted to the hospital, Tian said that at that moment, that's what made him decide that he wanted to become a doctor. Oh, wow. And so he became a doctor after this. He, he does. We'll talk about that, too. Doctors were stunned by her wounds. Dmitry Angelov said that in his 16 years of practicing, he had never seen such severe injuries. Her trachea had been cleanly cut through, and she was breathing through a hole above her collarbone. She had been disemboweled with large loops of her small bowel lying on top of her stomach, and it was contaminated with sand, lumps of charcoal, and somehow also lumps of lamb chop fat. What is that from? Um, We're not sure. They never say where that came from. So Maybe it was somebody just eating on the beach and some food got left there? Maybe. But it's never, it's not clear really where that came from. Yeah. After examination, it was determined that if she was able to survive, it would be unlikely that she would ever be able to have children. Right before surgery, she was conscious and doctors were shocked that she was able to sign the consent form in order for them to operate on her. Because I guess if you're unconscious, they can go ahead and operate. But if you are, even if you're in that bad condition, like you still have to consent to that, which is insane. Yeah. So they were shocked that she was even able to do that. Her trachea repaired to almost perfect condition, and then between her multiple stab wounds to her chest, none of them penetrated her lungs or heart, her abdomen was not infected, and her internal organs did not receive any permanent damage. That's amazing. Yeah. 
Like, the doctors were like, that's a miracle. You know, doctors are so logical. Oh, yeah. And all about Analytical science. And, yep. and they were like, this has to be a miracle. That, like, like she what was are able the to odds? survive that. Right. Yeah. What are the odds that that many stab wounds wouldn't hit a major organ, wouldn't cause some other type of permanent damage that they couldn't repair? Exactly. I'm sure they were just astonished. Yeah. While in recovery at the hospital, Allison recalled everything about her attackers. Franz and Tian's had a history of committing violent acts and rape against women, so police were familiar with them. When shown pictures of the men, Allison was able to point them out and identify them by writing down their names, since she wasn't able to speak. She was so determined. I love that. She really was. Like, yeah. this woman is amazing. Yeah. I seriously am so inspired by her story. It shouldn't have happened to her, but the fact that she was able to, like, persevere and just fight, yeah. fight and make sure... They were not able to get away with this. It's amazing. It's mind-blowing. The police were satisfied with this at first, but then they returned a second time telling the doctor, Dr. Common, that the prosecution would have a stronger case if she was able to verbalize her attacker's names. Even though she just had her trachea cut, they needed her to say it. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, seriously? (laughs) Really? But. Of course, she's like, okay, (laughs) hold my beer. Yeah, exactly. That's how she is. Mm -hmm. So this horrified him as he said he'd have to remove the tube in her throat and then potentially jeopardize the work that they had performed on her the day before. And he told Allison about what the police said. And then she did agree to him removing the tube. And once it was out, her first words were, that's wonderful. And my attackers were Franz and Tien's. And then after that, they were soon arrested and they were called the Ripper Rapists in the media. I don't ever remember hearing about them. I don't either. I mean... But maybe because it was a different country. Yeah. I mean, it was back in the 90s, but still, this is such a horrific case. You'd think you'd, that I know. you'd still hear about that. Right. I didn't even hear about it until the documentary, but I'm, I'm just kind of surprised. Such an insane case would just not be in the media all over. Yeah. When her friends and family visited her in the hospital, they were overwhelmed with emotion seeing her in that condition. When Allison opened her eyes, they were still bloodshot, but she smiled at them and told them not to cry, and she showed them her hand and said, look, I didn't even crack a nail. And even though that wasn't true, she just didn't want her loved ones to be sad and worried about her. She was, like, trying to lighten the mood after what she went through. I'm like, how is she so strong? Yeah. That's an amazing amount of strength. It is. She wrote a heartfelt note to the newspaper to collectively thank everyone who saved her, sent her flowers, and prayed for her. During the long process of recovery, Allison says that it was so painful she couldn't sleep. She said it was just like all-consuming pain. Oh, I bet. All the time. She had to return to the hospital every day for treatment specifically on her abdomen for it to be repeatedly scraped in order for it to form new cells. What? So I guess in order for her skin to like regenerate, like they had to keep on... They had to scrape it? Yeah. In the documentary, they show you pictures of her recovery and like the injuries. So it's very graphic if you do decide to watch it. Yeah, be prepared. Um, yeah. You're watching it and you just can't believe this is real and somebody went through this. this. It's yeah. unbelievable. Franz was a married man with a child at the time, but would still go out to rape innocent women. He had raped two women before he raped Allison. The first woman didn't report it to the police until a week later because they threatened to kill her if she went to the police. The second woman was pregnant at the time, but ran straight into the police van after it happened. After that, the men decided that they would have to kill their next victim because the previous ones didn't listen. 
When police told Franz that he was being charged with attempted murder, he was confused. But when he was told that Allison was alive, he was left speechless. He quickly confessed, saying that Allison would likely tell them everything that happened. And he took off a ring that he was wearing that was stained with blood and handed it to the officer. He said it belonged to her. Oh, he took her ring? Yeah, and then was wearing it while the blood was still on there? And this is the first person he had brutally attacked Um, and attempted to murder? They didn't mention any other crimes that he had committed prior to this. Where he had attempted murder? Yeah. Man, it sounds like he wow. was more of like a sexual offender. But it obviously escalated very quickly. So he probably would have done this to more people. She, absolutely. She absolutely saved who knows how many people. Exactly. And she, who would survive this? So like, you know that she saved people. Yeah, she totally did. If they were never caught and kept doing this, who, knew, who knows how many victims they would have. Yeah. The two men indicated that they would plead guilty, but the police knew that they could change their mind at any time. Now, this is something that was interesting to me. Typically in South Africa, it was the law that victims would need to identify their attackers by pointing them out in a lineup and then placing their hand on the shoulder of their attacker and then taking a photo with them to prove that the suspect was pointed out by the victim. That's traumatic. Did she have to do that? No, luckily. Luckily, the detective in this case was like, no, we're yeah. not doing that. And this <laughs> was actually the first time that they had ever like decided to do something different. Have they done away with that method now? I think they continue to. They continue use that. to do that. Oh, well, they continue to do what he suggests later on. Okay. The investigator in this case, Melvin Humple, suggested that instead, for the first time, they try something new, and they had Allison identify them through a one-way glass identification. She just she came in. Like we do here. Yeah. And they couldn't see her. She could see them. And she identified both of them. Oh, thank goodness she didn't have to do that other method. Oh. Yeah. But it was still like traumatizing for her because I'm I don't sure. even think there were like two separate rooms. They were still in the same room and it was like a, a glass that you could move. Just like a partition. Yeah. So the, I'm sure that did not make her feel safe. But she still persevered and did whatever she had to do. During the court process... The prosecutor and judge would both admit that this was a case that impacted them heavily. Seeing the wounds on Allison, the fact that she survived, and then having to testify before her attackers was something unimaginable. Franz testified that he was a Satanist and that he needed a pastor to get the demons out of his body. It's believed that he used this tactic as a ploy to possibly claim insanity or just not take accountability. And both men pled guilty to eight charges which included kidnapping, rape, and attempted murder. In August of 1995, Judge Chris Jansen sentenced them to life in prison as they were a threat to society and should not be released. The death sentence was considered unconstitutional in South Africa, but Judge Jansen states that if it were constitutional, he would have seriously considered imposing the death sentence in this case. Franz was sentenced to three life terms and no parole, and Tien's was sentenced to one life term and 25 years with no parole. So neither of them will ever be able to get out. Well, we'll talk about that. After the court case, Allison said she experienced depression for the first time. She became overcome with a sense of indifference and not caring, and she blamed Franz and Tien's for the way her life was at present. But soon, she realized that she was giving them power over her life again. And she, she chose to live, just like before. 
During her depression, she received an invitation to be a speaker at the Rotary Club. And she said that public speaking was a huge fear of hers, but she still agreed to do it. After that time, she realized that she loved the feeling and she wanted to do it again. Motivational speaking gave her a new purpose, a new business, and a chance to heal. She traveled around the world telling her story in at least 35 countries. She inspired other survivors to come forward and share their stories. In 1995, she won the prestigious Rotarian Paul Harris Award for Courage Beyond the Norm and Femina Magazine's Woman of Courage Award. She was honored as Port Elizabeth's Citizen of the Year. She's written two books, I Have a Life and For the Tough Times. In 2016, a documentary about her story was filmed called Allison. In 2020, she joined a nonprofit healthcare provider in Hawaii as the executive board member. The only other time that Allison fell into a depression is when she read in the newspaper that her attackers may come up for parole, even though the judge specifically put in the sentence that they should not be released. A woman emailed Allison from the U.S. stating that she was Francis' fiancé and asked her if she would help him get out. Can you imagine the audacity? No, no, seriously? First of all, we've talked about people who reach are out to... Yeah, are obsessed with criminals and especially the horrific crimes of rape and murder. Yeah, and you know this crime was done to this person where she potentially could have died. And you reach out to her and ask her to, to, to say, Can you help me? That's... What in the world? It's disgusting. Well... She did not help him, but um, he's currently in prison still. He has an active Facebook and participates in online sex rooms, which I don't know how that works. Talking about the documentary, uh, he requested an interview with the filmmaker, and he demanded that Allison write him a letter of forgiveness. Wait, wait. She should apologize to him? Yeah. That's what he thinks. And not only that, though. He wanted profit shares for her book sales. And motivational speaking backdated. He believes that what he did to Allison is the only reason that she has a success story. Okay, you know. The... What? Oh. You can't even... What what deranged kind of person thinks this way? This is somebody that the world would be better off without. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like the judge said, if the death penalty... Had been on the table. I mean, you know, and I'm not even like a big advocate for the death penalty i don't neither am i but in this case wouldn't be mad about it yeah seriously because not only is he not sorry about it he's asking her for profit sharing yeah and saying he's responsible for her her success success. yeah that's that's another level is that what narcissism is that insanity i I have no idea personality disorder that most psychopaths have he would have been a serial killer oh definitely i can see that Because he doesn't even care, and he just thinks, like, everything is about him, and she should apologize to him. I I couldn't believe it either when I saw (laughs) that. I was like, get this guy out of here. Yeah. It's too early, but there's a word for it. Like, every single serial killer has this Mm. disorder. But not everybody with this disorder is a serial killer. He definitely would have been a serial killer, I think, if she hadn't have stopped him. It's definitely thanks to her that he's behind bars. And how awesome that she's able to take her story and use it to tell other victims that it's okay you can have a life after this yeah and encourage people to talk about their stories and you know not feel ashamed or like she says that 99.9 percent of people did not believe she would survive but 
it was that like 0.1% that, you know, that was her will to live. And so it just makes it seem like anything's possible if she can come through this situation. Yeah. So needless to say that his requests were declined. <laughs> and I should he, hope so. He did not get anything. In October 2015, Franz and Tian's became eligible for parole. How? How? If it was in the judge's order that they couldn't. I don't understand. The sentencing said they wouldn't. I couldn't find out how they were eligible or how they became eligible for parole. I don't know. Maybe something changed in the law later on. Okay. This was back in um, the 90s and now it's 2015. So I'm not sure. But Allison worked on a public petition to reject their paroles and keep them in jail. And she encouraged national and international citizens to participate in it. I couldn't find any record if there was a parole hearing or if they were released. But I think if I can't find anything on it, maybe that's good news. Like that they stayed in jail. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping that's the case. And also, like, you'll be surprised to hear, I don't, I don't know if you know this part already, but miraculously, Allison would later give birth to two boys, even after being told that she would never be able to have kids. And Tian, the man who saved her, 10 years later, would become a doctor and would be the assisting doctor at the birth of her second child. That's so cool. I love that. That is like the best ending. Yeah. Like, I was like, that's amazing like she was told she would never be able to have kids and she has two she's like listen (laughs) you don't know who you're talking to yeah she said she loved being pregnant and like there were no complications she was able to carry them full term and that's amazing even with all that like damage yeah that was done to her body she was still able to have kids i love that and that's beautiful especially if she had wanted children you know and then they had told her no you can't and then she's like well you just wait i will yeah, it's like she defied all of the odds that were against her. And so it's it's really a, an amazing and an uplifting story. I mean, you hear about like how awful the crime was, how severe her injuries were. And then like to know at the end of it, like she survived and she... A like, lot of beautiful things happened after. Well, I love how like the man who ended up saving her also ended up like being there to assist with her giving birth. I know. It's just, that's, that's is so that special. life? Like, that's yeah. how it just came around and, like, brought them together again. And then, obviously, like, the surgeons, like, the people who are able to help save her, her own will to live and keep fighting and keep her attackers in jail. Like, it just... It's inspiring. It's inspiring. Yeah. It's like, there were a lot of good people in this story. Obviously, the two that weren't... The garbage humans. Are, are locked up and... Yeah you know, hopefully rot in jail. But I think it's also a tale of how amazing people can be at the same time. Mm-hmm. I hope that I have like the strength to do or to go through things like she does. If she can do it, that really like inspires other people to, to do the same thing. Because usually when we're hearing these types of stories and cases, the person doesn't survive. And so this is, I think, a case where you don't have to end it with they didn't survive and, you know, they're either looking for the killer or the killer's in jail. But this one ended where, like, she survived everything. Even the prosecutor in this case, she said it was harder for her to handle this case because usually when she's trying to prosecute murder cases, the the victims are dead. The victims are already dead. And you can kind of like detach yourself a little bit. But when you are dealing with a victim who has survived this and who could have died, it's so much more like impactful. And she said that like she would go home and she would cry because she's like, I can't believe she survived this. I'm sure that was so intense 
Yeah, this was a very intense case, but also inspiring. Yeah, it definitely has good in it in the end, especially. I just, I love how the vet tech who saved her was ended up becoming a doctor and helping her to give birth to her second child, which she wasn't even supposed to be able to have. I think that's, it sounds like a movie. It does. <laughs> doesn't it really even sound does. like it could really happen. So it's, yeah. it's amazing. So this was a good one. Yeah, well, I think I was supposed to cover two other cases that I mentioned before. But I'm glad you covered this one. I don't think a lot of people have heard of it, so I think it was a good one to cover. Yeah, I think it's an important one. Mm -hmm. We are covering in the next episode. <laughs> yes. Tell us. The mysterious Auburn deaths. Uh, Auburn, Georgia. I'm sorry. Auburn, California. It's early. <laughs> like we said, it's early for it's us. Early. <laughs> Caffeine's still kicking in. <laughs> there is an Auburn, Georgia. So, but no, Auburn, California, there was a string of mysterious deaths. And my friend Kristen from California, she sent me a link to a documentary. And so we're going to talk about these 10 cases that are definitely strange. And I cannot wait to hear what you think about this because I don't even know what I think right now. I'm after we go through the episode, I kind of have a stance on what I think happened, but we'll wait until the episode is done. Okay. I'm excited to hear about this one because never heard about it. And it sounds like there's a lot of mystery behind it. There is. We'll talk about it uh, shortly. In the next one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're listening, you may have to wait a couple weeks if it's not out, but we're going to talk about it in about five minutes. We will. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. We'll get stuff up there eventually. At Freshly Brew Noir. If you have any show ideas, email us at freshlybrewnoir at gmail.com. And if you want to buy our shirt, call. Um. <laughs> don't call us. <laughs> don't call us. We don't have a number out. <laughs> if you want to buy our shirts, you can go on to www.freshlybrewnoir.com and we have them for sale. So thank and you. And rate us five stars. Always. And until next time. Stay caffeinated. Get hobbies. And don't murder people. Bye. Bye. Bye.